Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy, I'm Kevin McCullough. This week, the FBI Director Ray comes under scrutiny over his refusal to yield documents to the House Oversight Committee. I can't speak to the specific document. This comes on the heels of the report revealing so much about the alleged Trump-Russia connection. This was a hoax perpetrated as political disinformation by the Clinton campaign. We'll get analysis from former federal prosecutor Andrew McCarthy. I think the Bureau's ethos changed after 9-11 and it became more of an intelligence agency than a police agency. We'll also look at the central role of our first freedom. We'll lose the next generation if we don't stand for religious freedom. And First Amendment free expression currently before the Supreme Court. The 303 creative case that will be decided shortly. Everyone should be free to live and work in alignment with what they believe without the government punishing us. All this and more. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kevin McCullough, your host. Great to be with you again. I'm coming to you from my home station in New York City. You can hear my own program live each weekday afternoon on AM 570 and 102.3 FM, The Mission, WMCA, and weeknights at 7 on AM 970, The Answer. Learn more at thatkevinshow.com. We'll begin today with a look at some of the concerning developments we've seen coming out of the FBI. James Comer, Kentucky congressman and chairman of the House Oversight Committee, called FBI Director Christopher Wray before his committee looking to charge Wray with contempt of Congress. The immediate context here is Wray's refusal to turn over a document that allegedly describes a criminal scheme amongst the Bidens. Has the FBI complied with the subpoena for this document? Uh, I believe we submitted a uh, lengthy letter uh, earlier today. The, a letter, but uh, not the document that was the subject of the uh, subpoena request. I, I can't speak to the specific document. Uh, we are committed to working collaboratively with both committees. All of this most recent news comes on the heels of a report from special counsel John Durham looking at all of the alleged ties between Trump and Russia. It was a damning look at our nation's most powerful law enforcement agency. Don Crow turned to Hans von Spakovsky of the Heritage Foundation. From WAVA 105.1 FM in the nation's capital. Don, what what drove the FBI's really politically targeted investigation was the hostility of agents and particularly FBI leadership, their absolute hostility to Donald Trump. That is why, for example, Durham says they ignored any evidence to the contrary and why they did things like broke their usual protocols for investigation. They use totally uncorroborated claims to open up this huge investigation. And you know one of the things they didn't do? They didn't even check with their own internal Russia intelligence specialists who would have said to them, There's no intelligence saying that the Trump administration or its people have been uh, working with or conspiring with Russian leadership, that their own people would have told them that, but they didn't do it. Uh, How deep does this go? I should say, how long back, how far back in the history of the FBI has this top level of the FBI been corrupted, do you think? Or is it fairly recent with the coming of Hillary et al.? Well, look, the FBI's had its problems in the past, but I don't remember anything this bad. You know, in reaction to this report by Durham, 
the FBI put out this short statement saying, well, all these things happened in 2016, 2017, and we've put corrective measures in yeah. place. Yeah. Well, not according to the whistleblowers and the testimony of recent FBI whistleblowers who have talked about everything from the way people internally at the FBI prevented the Hunter Biden investigation from going forward to the, to the latest, which was just, what, about a couple of months ago, when it came out that one particular FBI office was talking about, about putting informants into Catholic churches. Absolutely right. Elaborate a little more on the price being paid, not only by the FBI itself. I doubt very many honest people have any confidence in the FBI now. And there are growing calls, I think rightly so, for dismantling and restructuring. But uh, some very innocent people really got nailed and suffered under this as well, didn't they? Yeah, they did. I mean, look, they ruined the FBI with this investigation of what turned out to be a hoax. Everybody should keep in mind, this was a hoax perpetrated as political disinformation by the Clinton campaign. And it ruined the professional careers and personal lives of many innocent individuals associated with the Trump campaign, like Carter Page. And we spent, what, $40 million of uh, taxpayer money to fund this several-year investigation by Robert Mueller that in many ways crippled the Trump administration during his presidency and kept good people from going into the administration because they didn't want to get caught up uh, in all of this. And, and by the way, for folks to understand just how serious this is, Durham points out that the FBI had information about the Clinton campaign and about how apparently foreign interests, apparently foreign governments uh, and others, had these plans to make illegal contributions to the Clinton campaign, which actually did occur, and to the Clinton Foundation with the idea of, uh, if she became president, getting good treatment from her. They had actually confirmed information about that, unlike the Trump hoax. And what did they do? Nothing. They decided to stay away from that. Comey, the head of the FBI, had one of his people actually call one of the agents who had specific information about an illegal foreign campaign contribution made to the uh, Clinton campaign and said, stay away from this. Don't do anything about it. So completely different treatment of Clinton as opposed to Trump. Uh, Hans, in this column, among many other things, you point out that this really was a very broad and extensive investigation. I mean, nearly 500 interviews and over 6 million pages of documents. And then uh, you also say it takes Durham 306 pages to describe all the mistakes, errors, and gaffes committed by the FBI personnel. Walk us through some of those. Well, for example, you know, I talk about how they didn't even consult their own Russian analysts inside the FBI. They also totally failed to check with our intelligence agencies, the CIA, the NSA, to say, well, do you have any intelligence that would corroborate the idea that Trump officials are somehow coordinating with the Russians? If they had, they would have been told, no, we have nothing evidence like that. They actually had recordings of telephone calls made with some of the targets of the investigation that basically had all kinds of exculpatory information to show they weren't involved in anything like this. And what did the FBI do with that? 
They ignored it. The pattern that we see developing here is all too clear. How should we be understanding all of this? What can be done? I turn to Andrew McCarthy, a former federal prosecutor and one of the best minds making sense of the days and times we're living through. Andy, I wrote about the warrantless searches that the FBI had uncovered in that FISA ruling. It's got to be pretty embarrassing for the Bureau to to have those kinds of numbers coming out. 3.4 million data searches without warrants, 278,000 physical searches without warrants just in one calendar year. What are you suspecting is the conversation behind the doors at the Bureau? And what should the conversation be about how to clean this up? Kevin, I, I think it probably gets worse from even the startling numbers that you're talking about, because I think these scandals are starting to sort of knit together. So what it looks like from what the FISA judge's order indicates is that a lot of these illegal searches where they actually access some of the information that they've hoarded, which that's part of the problem. I'll get, I'll get to that in a second. But subject matter wise, it looks like they stepped up on the Capitol riot in particular. A lot of these searches are related to that. We have reason now to think that with pressure from the Democrats, the FBI has basically been cooking its books to make it look like there's more domestic terrorism driven by white supremacists in the United States than there actually is. The Democrats have been pushing the Bureau to increase those cases and to basically account for them, which is supposed to hook up with the Democrats' messaging that the biggest threat facing the country is white supremacist domestic terrorism, which is their code for Trump supporters. Um, and it looks to me like this, um, this FISA abuse plays right into that as as you would figure if the you know if the bureau is changing the way that it accounts for domestic terrorism cases you're not surprised to find that when they're unlawfully accessing FISA information it's based on searches that are connected to the Capitol riot yeah and given the rather large mandate that the FBI has to be working on actual law enforcement issues and all of the legal stuff they need to be doing to help protect Americans. What should the messaging, particularly for the Republicans, whether it's Trump or not, what should the messaging be to the American people about how this is going to get reformed? Because I don't think this particular Democratic Party, the administration that's there at the moment, I could be wrong, but I don't think that they have a real interest in even acknowledging this problem. But certainly the Republicans can and should be shining a light on it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, I'm an opponent of FISA. I never thought it was a good idea. I don't think it's a workable system. So to my mind, I would I would use these this stream of stuff that we get all the time, because every time you sort of peek under the rocks to see what's going on with FISA, we find that they're abusing it and that the judges can't do anything about it. And of course, the judges can't do anything about it because intelligence collection is not a judicial function. So this whole system uh, is wrongheaded to begin with. I think they should get rid of the system. I've also argued, Kevin, that I think the FBI should go back to just being a, well, it was never just a law enforcement agency, but I think it should be, I think their national security foreign counterintelligence mission should be taken away and reassigned to an intelligence entity like the Brits have at MI5 that doesn't have police power. And the Bureau, I think the Bureau's ethos 
changed after 9-11 and it became more of an intelligence agency than a police agency. I think the unfortunate thing with this, Kevin, is what we're talking about now in connection with the surveillance is a real problem. And it would be a problem even if we were talking about good faith people who we trusted to be scrupulous. Oh, and that is the the technological capability of the government to suck up all this information has surpassed its ability to develop algorithms that sift it so they're only allowed to look at what they're allowed to look at. And that would be a hard technological problem, even if we were dealing with people that we could have complete faith in. But unfortunately, the Bureau doesn't inspire that kind of faith anymore. So it's hard to imagine that they're going to be the ones that fix this. Coming up, a key First Amendment case before the Supreme Court. Everyone should be free to live and work in alignment with what they believe without the government punishing us. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Kevin McCullough. I imagine nearly all of you listening to our program or podcast today sense at a deep level that our nation is changing very quickly and in some ways very undeniably. As we look to the future, we should all be giving attention to what our nation's founders referred to as our first freedom, that is religious freedom. Bill Bunkley, my friend and colleague in Tampa, was at the recent meeting of the National Religious Broadcasters in Orlando, Florida. He sat down with Sherry Houston of ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Why is religious liberty important and uh, why should every Christian who's not engaged get engaged? Because if we don't stand for our religious liberty, which is the freedom to share Christ without government intervention, where are we heading? Um, You know, I've done a lot of thinking when it comes to that question because I speak a lot and I get asked that quite a bit. And the simplest answer is the reason religious freedom is so important. It's because of the sake of the lost, right? It's for their sake. We know that the gospel will go forth one way or another. But if we don't have religious freedom, if we can no longer speak truth, then it's the lost who suffers. You know, we know that we all face a spiritual enemy, and one of the things that he's trying to do is to actually shut down free speech and shut down religious freedom. Why he wants to make it first unspeakable, but ultimately move to unthinkable. And we'll lose the next generation if we don't stand for religious freedom. And it'll be a loss for the world, not just the United States. When I grew up, we certainly were still in a Christian culture. If you talked about faith or religion, it was a question of what were the Baptists doing? What's the Methodists doing over there? And today, the tables have been turned. What happened to our culture? Why this absolute onslaught from uh, cultural Marxism that is just absolutely 
upended everything from the schoolhouse to the courthouse. Talk about that because our culture has really taken a turn for the worse. Well, our culture right now is promoting a worldview that promotes victims, divides people against each other, is completely trying to destroy the distinction between male and female, and now trying to take away parental rights. Mm. Um, Our culture is hostile to the gospel right now. And so we know that we have, like, when we file cases at Alliance Defending Freedom, it's right at the center of where truth and lies and deception meet. And so it's so important to be aware of what's going on. You mentioned legislative issues. It's critical to know what's going on in your city, your county, your state, so that we can make our voices heard and we can push back what the culture is trying to do right now. Mm. What are some of the cases that uh, we should be paying attention to, to be aware of, that really could take away our freedoms uh, of just living our lives out and sharing Christ? Well, I'll talk about two of the cases that are very close to our members. Uh, One is Lori Smith. This is about free speech. Our CEO, Kristen Wagner, argued that case before the Supreme Court in December. And then the second case that people need to be aware of is just parental rights. So we have a number of cases where the public school system was able to remove the child from the home. So parents knowing their rights and being involved in their children's education is very important. One of those cases Sherry just mentioned is the 303 Creative case. The owner of the creative design shop is Lori Smith. She joined with ADF's Kelly Fedoric in a conversation with my friend Eric Metaxas. What is your case? In other words, what did you do or not do that somebody said, oh, this woman's trouble. We want to we sue her. Well, seven years ago, um, I saw what was happening in the state of Colorado and the way the state was treating other people of faith. And as a custom graphic artist and website designer, I was concerned that I could be censored and silenced because of my beliefs. Not only that, but punished. And so I sought out some assistance from Alliance Defending Freedom and learned, yes, I could be punished for living consistently with my faith. So I decided to take a stand to protect not only my right to speak freely, but everyone's right to speak. So you were not challenged. You did this proactively. Yes, my case is a proactive case. No one should have to wait to be punished before they challenge an unjust law. Okay, so Kelly, you're the attorney uh, in in the picture here with ADF. How how did did this play out for you? Well, so when Lori contacted us, we realized, yes, there is a real threat to her freedom of speech in Colorado based on the way the law is written. And they are currently censoring her and preventing her from speaking and uh, creating art consistent with her beliefs. So we filed a lawsuit. We sued Colorado. And we're now at the United States Supreme Court. So your goal was to get the law changed. No, what we're trying to do is, is ensure that Colorado applies the law consistent with the Constitution. Public accommodation uh, laws yeah. and the First Amendment can and do coexist. They right. do so in most states across the country. Right. Colorado, though, is misusing its law to censor her speech. So we've asked the U.S. Supreme Court to rule that, that free speech is for everyone. The government cannot force someone to say something they don't believe. And we had argument in December and expect a decision any day now. What's interesting to me is that we're living in a time where you have to fight for things that you would assume everyone would take for granted. It's basic. But because of the aggression of basically secularists who are also, they're fundamentally 
un-American. In other right. words, it's it's they, they they don't subscribe to the uh, you know two and a half centuries of American law. They've decided that they can persecute whom they will, and they will get away with it if not for places like the Alliance Defending Freedom. I mean, that's just a fact. Well, and we're advocating for everyone because people forget if the government has the power to censor you, it can censor anyone in this country, even for those who disagree with with Lori and her beliefs. And so what's at stake is is the right of all Americans to speak freely. And and free speech is is for everyone. The promise of the First Amendment is that all of us should be able to, to pursue truth and then live our lives consistent with our beliefs. Well, these kinds of cases seem to be directed at Christians. In other words, it seems like that that there's a genuine animus on the part of secularists in uh, the well around the country, but particularly in the state of Colorado and the government that they sort of want to persecute Christian beliefs in particular. And I guess that's why this case comes up with with Lori, who is here, because you fear that they're going to come after you. Well, that's right. And I I think that the issue right now is that they're going after beliefs that the government doesn't like. They're trying to push people like Lori right. from the marketplace. Right. What's dangerous about that is that cultural winds change. And the reason we have the First Amendment is to prevent the government from imposing its will and silencing speech doesn't like. Because the shoe can be on the other foot for any of us. So all of our freedom of speech is at stake here. And I know Lori can speak to her perspective of that. Well, well. I, w- I, I would love you to do that, Lori. We've just got a couple of minutes left, but please... Uh, you know, where where do things stand now? How do you feel about all this this whole process? Well, I, I'm getting I'm encouraged because I know that the First Amendment protects me. And I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court very soon, any day now we'll have a decision, will continue to protect our right to speak freely. Listen, I just want to create custom artwork that's consistent with what I believe, but I want that for everyone. I want that for the LGBT web designer. I would want that for anyone, whether they agree with my views on marriage or not. Everyone should be free to live and work in alignment with what they believe without the government punishing us. Right. So really, this is not just a win for myself and 303 Creative. It's a win for each and every one of us. Coming up, getting a clear scriptural understanding of mankind made in God's image, male and female. We got to realize we're living in a time that other Christians didn't have to deal with. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. The times we are living through today has forced believers to be prepared on some new issues. From a biblical defense of marriage to a scriptural understanding of mankind made in God's image, male and female, many in the nation just accepted them as givens in the past. That's not the case today. David Clausen was one of the contributors to a new book and a new study guide intended for these times. It's titled appropriately, Male and Female, He Created Them, A Study on Gender, Sexuality, and Marriage. Clausen was a guest of Don Crow. One of the things is the incredible move so quickly in this amoral, if not immoral, direction by the culture. What does it imply in terms of what Christians now need to 
cope with it effectively. And more to the point, I guess, for me and others, how did we get here to begin with? Two great questions, and I'll take them in reverse order, Don. I think, you know, everyone has heard of the term sexual revolution in the 1960s, kind of the loosening of sexual mores, and that's really significant. But we have now several generations of Americans and of Westerners who have increasingly uh, walked away from biblical Christianity. Uh, We did a survey with George Barna a couple years ago that showed only 21% of those who attend church actually have a biblical worldview. We did that survey uh, when we launched our Center for Biblical Worldview. And so I think that's a huge part of it, that Christianity is increasingly losing its influence in places like the United States. Uh, then you just, when we think about sexual ethics, uh, think about uh, changes related to the prevalence of no-fault divorce. That's a part of it. Uh, contraceptive technologies things like the pill uh, that began to separate sex from the possibility of procreation. Uh, so all of these things are kind of in the bloodstream of our culture. Now, the, the rise, my goodness, I can't forget pornography and how ubiquitous that has become. And so, and then in the last decade with the, the rise of something like same-sex marriage, uh, where the institution of marriage has actually been redefined, all of those things taken together bring us to a place in 2023 uh, where the definition of humanity, male or female, is now up for grabs. And to your first question, why is this significant for Christians? Well, it's significant for Christians because these are the very issues, gender, sexuality, and marriage, that our culture is talking about right now at all times. And increasingly, these conversations are also taking place in our churches and my goodness, if we're if we're shying away from the conversation, guess what? The next generation is going to be discipled, but they're going to be discipled by something other than God's Word. Uh, I've long said I hold the pulpit more responsible than any other entity, uh, especially in the church, and of course, by virtue of that, in the culture, ultimately. Uh, what has happened to the pulpit uh, over these decades that has allowed this to develop Uh, Do we go back to the seminaries and the Bible institutions and training institutions? A friend of mine once said he thought that the average church is only six months behind its pulpit or its uh, pastor. What do you think? Well, I think the the ministry of the Word, uh, the preaching that takes place in the pulpit, that is absolutely fundamental. When When you're searching for a church, Don, the most important thing is what's being preached. Is it God's Word? Is it the gospel? Or is it something different? Is it something other? And so you're right. I think that, let me say this, even in churches, Don, that I think have the gospel right, uh, you would hear how sinners can reconcile the holy God. You know, they believe in the Bible. Even in many of those churches, there is a hesitancy or reluctance. Um, You need to speak to things like sexual ethics because Christian sexual ethics is so far out of step nowadays uh, with the mainstream society. And I know many ministers don't want to be perceived as being political. How is it the church has for 3,000 years stood strong on most of these issues? Where has this tsunami of false teaching come in so suddenly in recent times, at least in the church in America? Yeah, Don, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes would tell us that there's nothing new under the sun. And, and so, you know, assaults uh, against the Bible's teaching on really a, a litany of issues have come and gone throughout the history of the church. I do think we're living in a unique time right now, especially when it comes to sexual ethics, because what I call the moral revolution, I think, has reached such a velocity 
we got to realize we're living in a time that other Christians didn't have to deal with. Uh, I'm thinking about issues uh, that are constantly in the news right now related to transgenderism, uh, where you have you know biological men now identifying as women and, and then wanting to be able to compete on sports teams or or use restrooms or lockers or changing facilities. Or now the, the call from many on the left uh, is that minor children should be able to get cross-sex hormones or, or puberty blockers. And, and so it's true. The Bible teaches us there's nothing new under the sun. There's always assaults on biblical understanding of the human person. But we're living in a day where that moral change is happening at a, a faster pace, at least when it comes to sexual ethics, than we've ever had to deal with. And again, one of the reasons we wrote the book is, you know, God's Word does provide solid answers for us. And as Christians, we need to know that and be comforted by that. Coming up, the modern sense of the self. If you read the Psalms, the Psalms are full of emotions. They're full of the psalmist reflecting on who he is, where he fits into the world. Carl Truman, stay with us. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. As we consider the polarized times we are living in today, we recognize that there are fewer and fewer shared convictions, beliefs that we hold in common with our political and cultural opponents. And we are terribly self-centered, that is, consumed with the modern notion of the self. And this is particularly true in the arena of human sexuality. Carl Truman of Grove City College joined our friend Albert Moeller on his Thinking in Public podcast. The subject, Truman's new book, Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. You've written on the rise and fall of the modern self. How does this new book, Strange New World, fit into that? Well, in, in part, it's it's something of a precy of the larger book. Ryan Anderson at the Ethics and Public Policy Center contacted me shortly after the longer book had come out and said, could I do something for... Uh, for DC staffers, something you could get into the hands of people that they'd read on their commute. He said, nobody's going to read a 400 page book. Uh, at the same time, a lot of pastors. They'll just claim me. they had. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of seem to have claimed they read it since, yes, right. but uh, I was also contacted by a number of pastors who were saying, is it possible to get this material in a form that we could do in, in Sunday schools or discussion groups at church? So there's some new material in it as well, but it's really designed to, to be more accessible to the lay person or the busy person who doesn't have time to read a, a 400-page book. Uh, you, you entitled your first book, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self. That implies there is a modern self different than uh, whatever came before. But th this idea of the self is, is necessary. I mean, we, we, we assume uh, on good grounds that a part of, uh, of the imago dei is the sense of self, a sense of self that dogs and cats and you know, tigers don't have, but the human beings do have. So, so what is that self? 
Well, bottom line is that the self is is self-understanding. It's how we think and imagine ourselves to be relative to the world around us. Uh, Human beings have always had an inner space. We've always had this ability for self-reflection. If you you read the Psalms, the Psalms are full of emotions. They're full of the psalmist reflecting on who he is, where he fits into the world. The key thing, I think, for the modern self is the level of authority we've come to grant to that inner space. I use as an illustration to to draw this out. Think of transgenderism, which is perhaps the most extreme example of modern selfhood we're currently witnessing. If you'd gone to the doctor 150 years ago and and said you're a a woman trapped in a man's body, the doctor would have said that's a problem. It's a problem of your mind. We, We need to bring your mind into conformity with your body. If you go to a doctor and say that today, the doctor will say it's a problem. It's a problem of your body. We need to bring your body into conformity with your mind. If you juxtapose those two scenarios, what you see is a culture of the shifted dramatically towards seeing our inner emotions, our inner convictions, our inner psyche as being the foundation of who we are, an external reality as having to bow or conform to that. So the modern self is one that prioritizes inner feelings and is, I would say, dramatically impatient with external authorities, even now the authority of our own body. And also with critical theory, of course, while the the jargon is rebarbative and often hard to understand, the ideas are pretty simple and they play to, to modern pieties. It's all about power and victimhood. It's all about the idea that if somebody has something, then somebody else has been deprived of it. These are simple ideas that that appeal to the common right. sense virtues of the modern person. So critical theory has a kind of moral advantage there. But I'm like you. I mean, if you told me that I I regard gender theory as the least plausible branch of continental philosophy, and yet it's the one that that has come even more than critical race theory, I think, to dominate modern society. And it's totally implausible and bizarre. And yet, yeah, I read an article yesterday on, and then on the NBC website yeah. about how we should celebrate Leah Thomas, the trans swimmer, in the same way that Jackie Robinson was celebrated 70, 80 years ago. As if there's any real comparison. The right. fact that somebody could write that right. and get away with it is stunning, I think, and, and a well, real thing to a modern society. Indeed. I will just say that... Uh, getting away with it is more difficult than getting it run at NBC. (laughs) Um, Because uh, if you look at the crowd at the NCAA competition, that crowd was not celebrating Leah Thomas coming in first. Uh, As a matter of fact, stood and overwhelmingly applauded uh, the woman who came in second. Yeah, I think that what we're beginning to see on the trans issue, of course, is that the, the trans issue, unlike other issues, can impinge yes. very directly on ordinary people's lives, bathrooms, sports, things like this. And we're beginning yes. to see that a lot of the the way this theoretical stuff has been pushed, it's been by elites, by intellectuals and cultural elites. For the man and woman in the street, this pinches and they're going to cry out with pain as it pinches. And that's what we're beginning to see. And that actually for me is, 
is a sign of encouragement at this point. It's possible that we could see some kind of pushback against this stuff in in the near future. I hope so. Yeah, we are seeing the pushback, but I want to make a note about that because the pushback right now is not, hey, this entire ideology is insane. It is instead, we ought to protect women's sports. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I'm, I'm writing about right now is the fact that the actual terrain of controversy is extremely narrow. And you even have people whether it's Billie Jean King or uh, Martina Navratilova, who, and both of them openly lesbian in identity. And, and none of them are saying, look, we need to actually recover a sane sexual morality and an understanding of, of uh, ontology here. They're just saying, hey, let's carve out from the revolution. Let's just carve out women's sports. One other thing I'll just simply point out is that I'd love to bring, you know, Aristotle into the room for just a moment. So, you know, don't bring in so, some uh, Christian, uh, you know, orthodox figure. Don't bring John Calvin in. Let's just bring Aristotle in. And Aristotle's first statement is going to be, you can't get babies out of this. Yeah. Yes. I mean, human <laughs> beings have a natural telos right. and a natural end. Our bodies are built to fit together in certain ways and not right. in others and to produce certain results and not others. So, uh, I mean, what you really see again with the the, the tea stuff is, is this dramatic revolt against nature. And J.K. Rowling, I would actually say J.K. Rowling has certainly, she's engaging on a broader front than women's sports. She's pointing to the importance of biology in how one defines women. And I think, you know, kudos to her. And yes, that's pointing us back to the basic essentialism that Marx, Aristotle, and and I think is, pardon the pun, essentially true. Uh, We need to get back to that. Coming up. Uh, You have this cacophony of voices all pressing basically the same message. You are the center of the universe. Your happiness is paramount. Don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. And here's how to achieve it. More with Carl Truman. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Officer Tatum here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of emergency alert systems, keeping you advised on threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to the number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 52886. Standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Kevin McCullough. The moral and sexual revolution that we are living through today is loaded with internal contradictions and competing priorities. It's easy to see how eventually it could collapse on itself. The question is when, and will you and I be around to see it? Let's pick up on the conversation with Albert Moeller and Carl Truman, talking about the book, Strange New World. This is an issue about protecting children. If you're a 25-year-old and you want to transition from being a man to being a woman, I, I think that's a ridiculous thing to do. But if you want to spend your money or your insurance on that, do it. If it's a 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old it's happening to, I think we have a duty as a society to protect confused kids from themselves. It should be a pressing concern to all Christians. It should be like abortion. It should be something that we feel the need to speak out on, to become unpopular over, to take hits over, because it's about protecting the weak, the confused, and the innocent. That's right. Behind this is a line of thinking, and that thinking is embodied in thinkers. So let's name some names. 
You have the the hermeneutics of suspicion, Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, Darwin, uh, all that's still here. You have the triumph of the therapeutic, everyone from, you know, Freud, Maslow, Rogers, uh, on and on. But eventually you end up with Oprah. Yeah. I mean, the obvious objection to the intellectual genealogy is, well, that's great, but nobody reads these people. So how on earth do they come to hold these these views? And I think the answer is they percolate down through pop culture. Right. Uh, Oprah's view of, of, of life as well. Uh, whatever works for you and doesn't hurt somebody else, do it. Right. Be whoever you want to be. As long as you're not hurting somebody else, be happy. So pop culture is absolutely critical and as it plays out now among young people of course we're not even talking about the main tv networks youtube tiktok these are the things that are shaping the minds of of uh, of young kids uh, today uh, you have this cacophony of voices all pressing basically the same message you are the center of the universe your happiness happiness is paramount don't let anybody else tell you otherwise and here's how to achieve it I wrote an article about 20 years ago entitled The Oprahfication of America. And uh, I really blame her for the formulation, which at least she popularized, which is your truth. And she began using it in virtually every single conversation. She would say, tell me your truth. Yeah, yeah. It's purely therapeutic at that point. What she really means is tell me what works for you. Tell me what makes you happy. Tell me what floats your boat. That's pervasive in society and and that's deep within the heart of the church as well these days it's not an us and them thing we are all somewhat affected by this 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 subjectification of truth and the reduction of it to that which works therapeutically huge problem and is alive and well within the church the same as it is within wider society That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please make it a point to visit our website, ChristianOutlook.com, and sign up for the podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin, producers David Plasayan and Alex Garrett, I'm Kevin McCullough. Join us again next time for the Christian Outlook. see you've uh, applied for our open position for account representative yeah that's the one great i see you went to uc berkeley it was really awesome we had several sit-ins to protest oppressive capitalism oh and uh how about your skills for this position oh yes i know all about how to spot microaggressions and root out privilege uh we don't really do that here we do accounting and finance consulting do you have any safe spaces safe spaces yes where people can go to get away from the colonialist mentality as long as there's a diversity equity and inclusion policy we'll be fine (sighs) life's too short to waste your time on bad hires i'm andrew krapichetz the ceo and founder of redballoon.work every week tens of thousands of reliable career-minded job seekers visit redballoon.work without all that woke nonsense. Post your open jobs at redballoon.work. And if you put in promo code SALEM, you'll receive 10% off your first month's job postings.